Welcome to your Catholic Drive Time, keeping you informed and inspired. We love God. We ought to be able to talk about Him. Getting you started on your day. With the latest in breaking news and information from the Vatican to the White House and everything in between. It's serious. It's fun. It's your Catholic Drive Time. And welcome to Catholic Drive Time. This is your host, Adrian Fonseca. Today is Friday, June 2nd, 2023, the Feast of St. Clotilda, St. Clotilda, rather, the Queen of France and spiritual mother of a nation. She was a woman of extraordinary faith and resilience. Born into a time of great tragedy and turmoil, she witnessed the brutal murder of her father, the massacre of her brothers, and the drowning of her mother. Despite these heart-wrenching experiences, her spirit remained unbroken. Captured and held captive in the court of her Aryan uncle, St. Clotilda's life took an unexpected turn when she caught the attention of King Clovis, the ruler of the Franks. Clovis saw in her an opportunity for an alliance and proposed a marriage. St. Clotilda, driven by her unwavering commitment to her Catholic faith, agreed to marry him on the condition that her beliefs would be respected. As the queen of a pagan and a barbarian nation, St. Clotilda's faith served as a guiding light. Her virtuous example influenced King Clovis, who began to question his own beliefs. In a crucial moment during a battle against the Alamanni barbarians, Clovis made a promise to the god of Clotilda. He pledged to convert to the Catholic faith if he emerged victorious. Miraculously, he triumphed in the true to his word. He embraced Catholicism. Under the guidance of St. Rumigius, the Bishop of Reims, Clovis prepared for his baptism. And on Christmas Eve in the year 496, St. Clotilda herself baptized Clovis and in the, rev- in the reverend halls of Reims Cathedral. It was a historic occasion as the first king of France received the sacrament that would forever shape the destiny of the nation. Legend tells of a dove descending from heaven during the baptism, carrying an ampulla filled with sacred oil. This oil was used by St. Remigius to anoint Clovis as the first king of France. The tradition continued for centuries until the turbulent days of the French Revolution, when the ampulla vanished. On that sacred Christmas day, many chiefs of the Frankish people also converted to Catholicism, marking the first conversion of an entire nation. The banner of the Franks, once bearing three frogs, was transformed into a banner adorned by the three fleur-de-lis, a symbol synonymous with France. St. Clotilda's life teaches us that even amidst the darkness of times, faith can guide us and miracles can happen. Her unwavering devotion in the conversion of Clovis and the Franks laid the foundation for the Christianization of France and the birth of Christendom. Today, St. Clotilda stands as a powerful patroness for those who long for the reign of Mary. Let us seek her intercession and draw inspiration from her story as we strive to build a new era of glory for the Church and Our Lady. In the midst of adversity, let us remember that the light of God's grace can shine through, illuminating our path forward. St. Clotilda, pray for us. Happy Friday to you. I know you survived the week. Congratulations. It's the weekend. Now you can relax. Deep breath. I know you accomplished everything you needed to accomplish. And if you didn't, then today is going to be the day to play catch up and get it all done. I know it's going to be a good day. 
And joining us right now is our producer, Tito Edwards. Good morning to you, Tito. Good morning, Adrian. Now I know where all those frog insults emanate from, where their origin is. It oh, was, yeah? Yeah, it was the uh, original symbol of uh, one of the Frankish tribes. I did it, not know that that was a, uh, a thing. That, insults related to frogs. Well, I, I, maybe it's a it's a nice insult how the English refer to the French as frogs. It happened sometime in the early 20th century. Maybe, oh, wow. maybe older, maybe new, but that's, that's what I'm aware of. I had never heard that. That's news to me. Okay, well, there you go. Uh, very, very interesting. The history, history is very interesting. And, you know, I was uh, talking to my friend Timothy not too long ago, and we did a uh, whole podcast talking about the history of Catholic England. And when we were talking about that, one of the things that kind of came up was the question of France being the eldest daughter of the church. He was saying, hey, you know, I think England is the eldest daughter of the church. England was Catholic before France was. And I was like, really? That's interesting. So random factoids, random things to talk about. That is interesting, Uh, though. Yeah. Check out that episode. You can find it on Catholic Conversations uh, with uh, Timothy Craig on True Catholic English, something like that. I forget the name of it. But at 15 past the hour today, Dr. Jared Stout is going to be on with us talking about the beer option, talking about whether or not Catholics should be drinking alcohol a very interesting conversation. You're going to enjoy it, I'm sure. And in the next hour, Mary Eberstadt's going to be on with us to discuss the issue of divorce and what is attacking our families. All this is coming up today. And this is all a pre-recorded show. So that means the next hour, there is going to be no game show, no fear and trembling game show today. That If you want to call in for the game show, you're going to have to tune in on Monday. We're going to be back with our live show. So come on on Monday and everything will be back to normal. But for this hour, we're going to have no live show. It's going to be pre-recorded shows, but you've never heard these interviews before. These interviews are brand new to you. They're brand new, never before heard. The first time anyone's hearing them is right here on Catholic Drive Time. So you're going to want to tune in for the show today. And pray for us while we're on our GRN retreat. We should be back about 5 p.m. today. Somewhere around then we'll be flying back into Houston from Midland. So pray for that. And speaking of prayer, today is, in fact, June 2nd, which is a, a the month of the Sacred Heart, the month of June. So we're going to be praying a prayer dedicated to the Sacred Heart, especially in reparation for all these outrages and sins that most uh, that plague our Lord's most sacred heart. So we're going to be praying this prayer. And if you have something that you want to pray for, we'll be praying for that as well. For our friends, family, and benefactors, and all those that we promise to pray for, and for a wonderful weekend that you have a blessed weekend, we'll be praying that prayer. And if you have a favorite prayer to the Sacred Heart that you want us to pray, uh, let me know. I'd be curious to know what your favorite prayer to the Sacred Heart is. But let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. My loving Jesus, out of the grateful love I bear thee, and as a reparation for all my unfaithfulness, I give thee my heart, and I consecrate myself wholly to thee. And with thy aid I propose to never sin again. Heart of Jesus, burning with love for us, inflame our hearts with love of thee. Let us pray, Lord, we beseech thee, let thy Holy Spirit kindle in our hearts that fire of charity which our Lord Jesus Christ, thy Son, sent forth from his innermost heart upon this earth, and will that it should burn with vehemence, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the Holy Ghost, God, forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. And now your headline news with Tito Edwards. Thank you very much, Adrian. Good morning. You are listening to Catholic Drive Time, keeping you informed and inspired. Today is Friday, June 2nd, Anno Domini 2023, and these are your headlines. 
Alatea is reporting the National Emmaus Moment. Pilgrims will make a cross across America. The continental U.S. will be blessed with the sign of the cross next year as walking pilgrims converge on the National Eucharistic Congress in Indiana from points north, east, south, and west. Others will be able to join the pilgrimage for smaller distances along the way in a less formal manner. The Pillar is reporting monks target contraband Trappist beer sales. The monks of Belgium's St. Sixtus Abbey don't brew their coveted Trappist beer for profit. So when they realized their product was being resold illegally at inflated prices over the border in the Netherlands, they decided to take action and now brew in limited quantities to a third party. Alatea is reporting the Pope names first ever apostolic nuncio to the Sultanate of Oman. This is the first time in the history of the Holy See's diplomacy that a Pope has been appointed an apostolic, apostolic nuncio to the Sultan. And finally, Alatea is reporting that the Knights of Columbus inspires with a new Father Capuan documentary, Free to View. The Knights of Columbus fits a lot of storytelling in just 15 minutes, taking viewers through Father Capuan's daring deeds in World War II and the Korean War. I am Tito Edwards, and these are today's headlines through a Catholic lens. Thank you, Tito, for keeping us up to date. The Gospel of the Day comes from Mark chapter 11, verses 11 through 26. So he came to Jerusalem and went into the temple, where he surveyed all that was about him. And then, for the hour was ready, our late went out with the twelve to Bethany. When they had left Bethany the next day, he was hungry. And observing a fig tree some way off with its leaves out, he went up to see if he could find anything on it. And when he reached it, he found leaves and nothing else. It was not the right season for figs. And he said to it aloud, in the hearing of his disciples, Let no man ever eat a fruit of thine hereafter. And so they came to Jerusalem. And there Jesus went into the temple and began driving out those who sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the bankers and the chairs of the pigeon sellers. Nor would he allow anyone to carry his wares through the temple. And this was the admonition he gave them. Is it not written, My house shall be known among all the nations for a house of prayer, whereas you have made it a den of thieves? The chief priests and scribes heard of this and looked for some means of making away with him. They were afraid of him because all the multitude was so full of admiration at his teaching. He left the city at evening. The next morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered from its roots. Peter had not forgotten. Master, he said, look at the fig tree which thou didst curse. It has withered away. And Jesus answered him, Have faith in God. I promise you, if anyone says to this mountain, Remove and be cast into the sea, and has no hesitation in his heart, but is sure that what he says is to come about, his wish will be granted him. I tell you then, when you ask for anything in prayer, you have only to believe that it is yours and it will be granted to you. When you stand praying, forgive whatever wrong any man has done you that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your transgressions. If you do not forgive, your Father who is in heaven will not forgive your transgressions either. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. A lot could be said here.
In fact, as I mentioned before, Cornelius Lapide actually has very little to say for this passage in Mark because he comments on this passage when he talks about it in Matthew. So I recommend checking out the driving out of the temple in Matthew and then the cursing the fig tree for Matthew in his commentary there if you want to get that. The one thing that I wanted to note, though, is that this is not the one and only time that our Lord drives out the money changers. In Cornelius Lapide's commentary on that passage, he points out that this happens at the very least. It happens twice, once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end of his ministry. This shows that our Lord thinks that this is something that is a legitimate reaction to evil. It's not some spur-of-the-moment thing. It is something that is deliberate, something that is planned, and he does it twice, at least. He might have done it many times. That's something to keep in mind. On verse 16 here, Cornelius Alapide says, And he suffered not that any man should carry a vessel through the temple, a vessel, utensil, an instrument, or furniture for profane use, such as a basket, a pot, an ewer, or a burden, through the temple, through the outermost court of the temple, which was the court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles might tarry and pray for to those who wish to pass from the sheep market called Bethsheda or be corruption Bethsaida to the upper city or Solomon's palace. The nearest way was through this porch or court of Solomon's for otherwise they would have to transverse the whole exterior boundary of this court. It was not surprising, therefore, that servants and children who were carrying any burden should take the nearer way through this court. But Christ forbade their doing so, both by his word and the gestures which he made with his hands and compelled them to go back. What then would he have done with respect to the holy place itself, with respect to our churches? Now, here is something to keep in mind. When we go to church, do we follow this advice? Our Lord was willing to tell people for the old temple, which our current churches are much greater than those. For the old temple, don't walk through it. If you're carrying profane things, walk around it. Take the long way around and walk all the way around the outer temple. Because remember, the temple was ginormous. So what would he tell you and I? Whenever we go to mass, if we're wearing shorts, if we're wearing t-shirts, if we're not dressed appropriately, if we're bringing in food, if we're bringing in toys, if we're bringing in things into the church, what would our Lord say? What would our Lord tell us if he saw us bringing those things into his temple? Something to keep in mind, something to think about, is worthy of meditation. Would our Lord be pleased with the way we dress and act and the things we bring into his holy place? Hmm. I don't know. Coming up next, the beer option with Dr. Stout. Can Catholics drink alcohol? Up next. Hey, Donnie, name four of the seven sacraments. Baptism, confession. That's right, reconciliation. Communion and confirmation. As parents, we're the primary educators of our Catholic faith to our children. And if you don't know your Catholic faith as well as you should, that's okay. Just tune in daily to the Guadalupe Radio Network by logging online to grnonline.com. The Guadalupe Radio Network. Listen, learn, love, and pass it on. This is Dale Alquist with a Chesterton Minute. How many times have you heard someone say that they don't like the Catholic Church because it's so dogmatic? 
Well, G.K. Chesterton says, You cannot live without dogmas. You cannot act for 24 hours without making a decision based on some deeply held belief that you cannot prove. Man can be defined as an animal that makes dogmas. Trees have no dogmas. Turnips are singularly broad-minded. In truth, there are only two kinds of people. Those who accept dogmas and know it, and those who accept dogmas and don't know it. So when someone objects to the Catholic Church for being too dogmatic, it only means that they are dogmatic against it, even though they have no idea what their own dogmas are. Want more than a minute? Visit us at Chesterton.org. And welcome back to Catholic Drive Time. This is your host, Adrian Fonseca. It's so good to be on with you today. Praise be to God. You know, it's an interesting conversation that we have constantly in uh, Catholic circles. Especially you get a lot of converts from different faiths. And, and sometimes people are very anti-alcohol. And I thought it would be a great conversation to have. So we invited Dr. Jared Stout, who is a renowned theologian and writer and speaker who specializes in systematic theology. He holds a Ph.D. in systematic theology from Ave Maria University, and he's a Benedictine oblate. But to our conversation today, he is the author of The Beer Option, Brewing a Catholic Culture Yesterday and Today. Plus, he has actually just authored something for Focus, a Catholic approach to alcohol, a discussion of the virtuous use of alcohol. A very good guide. I would check that out as well. Uh, kind of a companion to our conversation today, actually. Uh, but good morning to you, Dr. Stout. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Praise be to God. It's good to be here. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, there's a lot of people who have a bad experience with alcohol. And it's a very common, actually, of my generation. It's kind of interesting. My generation seems to have a kind of an aversion to alcohol. You see more and more people my age who are just like, I don't drink. I don't do that. And I think it's because they've seen alcoholism in their families. I think it's because they may have gone to college and, and, and experienced alcohol in a very bad way. And so they kind of swear off alcohol. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about this, uh, what you've noticed speaking with uh, people and trying to build culture around beer? How, what have you seen in terms of uh, people's disposition towards alcohol today? Well, first of all, I, I do think it's important to affirm that people have had very bad experiences, and it's understandable if someone with an alcoholic father or somebody who has experienced the abuse of alcohol even in their own lives, that they've fallen into that, that they would have an aversion. We say, yeah, that's understandable. Uh, but the, the, the bad use of something does not mean that it doesn't have good uses. And there are many examples that we could give of this. I mean, human sexuality is one of the greatest natural goods that God has created, and he's even drawn it into his supernatural life through the sacrament of matrimony. And yet we regularly abuse our sexuality. Um, you look at something like weapons, right, that they have legitimate uses for self-defense, and they can be abused for aggression, whether that's on a military level or a personal level. Uh, and when it comes to alcohol, I, I think the problem here would be to say, well, it only has a negative use. It doesn't have a positive use. And actually, when you look at the Bible and you look at the Catholic tradition, and maybe that's a, a missing element here, we see that the positive use is actually festivity. 
um, that in the Bible, alcohol is actually a part of the worship of God. Yes, that is correct. When you look at the Old Testament, there was a libation of wine and actually of something called shikar, which was a primitive form of beer that was part of the daily sacrifice that Israel made to God. And then, of course, Jesus himself uses wine at the Last Supper, and that is now part of the holy sacrifice of the Mass, which becomes his precious blood. And so alcohol has not just legitimate uses, but really important uses in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Um, and when we look at our history in the United States, we are mostly a Protestant culture. And, you know, you can see that Puritan influence, that there is a focus on the negative use of alcohol. And that's why we push drinking off to the age of 21. And it makes it something taboo in our culture. Like, you know, if I drink alcohol, that's a bad thing. It's, it's like a rebellion. And so young people are kind of looking at it from that perspective, and it sets things off from in the wrong perspective immediately. But if you look at countries like Italy, France, and Germany, uh, drinking alcohol is integrated into family life. It's integrated into meals. It's not something taboo. It's not a big deal um, from that perspective. And it's just a normal element of life and culture. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that's a it's a great point. And I was reading a couple articles I've been preparing for this conversation, and there is a poem that someone had posted about from Hilar Belloc, and I love this. I just thought it was it was very beautiful. And straight to your point here, it says, "Wherever the Catholic sun doth shine, there's always laughter and good red wine. At least I've always found it so. Benedictus Domino." And I think that's beautiful, uh, especially ending the way Hilar Belloc does. Because uh, my a little bit about my own background, I was a novice with the Dominican friars of uh, the province of St. Joseph for a period. And that was the way they would wake us up every morning. Every morning, they would knock on the door, Benedict Camus Domino, and we'd respond, Deo gratias. And any time that the, the prior would come and he would dispense us from any kind of penances or anything like that, he would ring a bell and say, Benedict Camus Domino, and we'd respond, Deo gratias. And it, this this idea of... Here is some here is some beverage. Here is a wine. Here is beer. Here is something for laughter and joy. Well, blessed be the name of the Lord. Benedict Camus Domino. That's the that's the attitude to have toward these things, and not a sort of um, a drunkenness that we should have. So, tell me a little bit about the difference between having being um, joyful in our in our drinking versus being having a, being overcome with drunkenness. What's the difference there? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'll just lay out three general principles that I use for Catholic drinking, and then we can come back to them. Um, but feasting, fasting, friendship. Um, and I really think when it comes to our intention, uh, feasting is the key thing. Now, feasting doesn't just mean ex- an excessive use of alcohol or of food, uh, but it means that we are actually partaking of food and drink in order to praise God. And that's very foreign to us as Americans. Uh, Because I think we live in a secular culture. Even if we're practicing Catholics, right, the culture around us is very secular. And so that means church is something we do on Sunday, and our faith stays in church. And then the rest of our life, well, that's out in the world, and we keep, you know, we have separation of church and state, and church stays out of the, you know, these elements of our life. So we don't tend to think of eating and drinking as a means of praising God. And that's a secular culture, right? That a truly Catholic culture 
has faith at the center. And our faith shapes how we do everything. And so that our life itself should become sacramental. Um, that's actually the thesis of my new book, How the Eucharist Can Save Civilization, is that the Eucharist should be at the center of everything. And Paul says, you know, whenever you drink, you know, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, right? Um, and that's it, right? That every time we drink, whether it's water or wine, whatever it happens to be, that it should be done in the name of the Lord and in order to praise him. And so we have lost the whole concept of festivity, that we praise God not only at Mass, but we praise God when we gather with our fellow Christians um, for the right occasion, right? That we're gathering um, for Christmas, Easter, other important feast days, our own name days, you know, that, to celebrate our patron saints. Um, and actually, every single Sunday is meant to be a day of festivity, in which we praise God not only at Mass, but when we gather together in our homes, when we gather with our friends, and that our eating and drinking um, and, and other you know, kind of activities that we do for recreation, that these things are all meant to give God praise and glory. Amen. Amen. That's uh, a great point, and I think it's a point that's often lost on people. And also, it's interesting because uh, people, right, like we said at the beginning, people rightly have this kind of aversion because they witness the bad uses of alcohol. And the problem, I think, a lot of the time is that they fail to find what we're talking about here. They don't see these things being played out by your average person. And so I think about the, the quote from G.K. Chesterton. He says, uh, and basically it's, it's, it's what you just said here. Uh, drink because you are happy, but never because you are miserable. Never drink when you are wretched without it. Or you will be like the gray-faced gin drinker in the slum. But drink when you would be happy without it. And you will be like the laughing peasants of Italy. Never drink because you need it, for this is rational drinking and the way to death and hell. But drink because you do not need it, for this is irrational drinking and the ancient health of the world. And, you know, this is a classic G.K. Chesterton paradox type thing. Uh, explain to me what Chesterton means here about the don't, don't rationally drink, drink irrationally. That seems like the opposite of what kind of advice you would normally want to give someone. Right. You know, and I would go back to these three principles, feasting, fasting, friendship. Um, fasting is essentially seeking to prevent our dependence, our attachment to alcohol, right? So we have to have the right intention. I think Chesterton is getting at this. What's the right intention? Well, the right intention for everything that we do should be to glorify God. That is a Catholic intention. Um, that is the purpose of Mass, right? We don't go to Mass for ourselves. We go to Mass for God to give Him glory, and we benefit from that. And everything else that we do should be for that intention as well. And if it isn't, then that's a sign, right? You know, what are you doing online? You know, what are you doing with your eating and drinking? What are you doing with the people you're gathering with? Is it for the glory of God or not? Right? And so what, what is the intention that would come in with alcohol? Well, I, I'm doing it as an escape. I'm doing it for fun, whatever that might mean. Right? You know, I, I'm doing it because I'm depressed. I'm miserable. This is the kind of thing that Chesterton is getting at. You would say, well, that's rational in the sense that I have a problem, okay? whether it's boredom, whether it's depression, or whether it's you know, this desire for rebellion. And so I'm turning to alcohol to kind of meet this perceived need. And he's saying, no, that's not what alcohol is for. 
It's for something bigger than that, right? And so I, I think that feasting and fasting have to come together. Um, and in, in when we look at the origins of Lent, you know, Lent was very intense in the early church. There was no eating at all during the day. There, there was one simple meal in the evening. That's it, you know, and there were no animal products that were consumed and also no wine. You know, beer was kind of left in ambiguity because the, the Greeks and the Romans didn't drink beer. So they said no wine during Lent. And then that was also true at the, at the beginnings of Advent. And so the church has laid out these penitential seasons in which we're meant to take a step back from alcohol and, and from even food in a lot of ways to say, you know, I'm making this a sacrifice. Uh, I'm ensuring that I'm not overly attached to these things so that when it does come to the time of Christian festivity and feasting, that I can enter into to these realities, um, uh, food and drink and, and friendship, all these things, from the right perspective. I, I'm ensuring that I do have the right intention because if I'm not actually, you know, engaging in penance and sacrifice when it comes to eating and drinking, well, then it's actually going to be hard for me to enter into feasting with the right perspective. So I think it's drawing these things together. And, and Chesterton just, just puts it so beautifully in that quote that you read. Excellent. Excellent. And uh, we're about to go to a quick break. When we come back, I also want to bring up a couple of objections that I've received and see how and Dr. Stout would respond to those objections. Uh, plus, I also want to look at uh, what Aquinas had to say about this topic. He kind of talked in the other direction. So you, I'm, we, were, we were talking at first about people saying that all alcohol is bad and responding to that. But uh, Thomas, when he picks it up, he's responding to people saying, no, drunkenness is fine. There's nothing wrong with getting drunk. It's not even a sin. So we're going to discuss that and much more. And then stay with us because we'll also be talking about some of the practical aspects of it. How can we, what, what does he recommend in terms of what to drink and how to uh, do that safely and with uh, friendship in mind. All these things coming up on Catholic Drive Time. Stay with us. We'll be right back with more with Dr. Jared Stout right after this break. Hello, this is Steve Gleason with your one-minute tool for Catholic evangelism. Here's the question for your non-Catholic friend. Do you know what are the two most common questions after attending a non-Catholic church service? Answer, how is the preaching and how is the worship? Well, here's your three best friendship tools for Catholic evangelism. Number one, evaluation of worship? That's odd. Who's evaluating worship? Well, here's what really is meant by that. How is the music, the singing, and the audible response of the people? And if that were important, wouldn't that be our Lord's decision anyway? Secondly, Catholic teaching. Worship is fundamentally not tied to music and song, though it can be supported by music and song. The 2,000-year history of Catholic worship is primarily about the representing of Jesus' unbloody, timeless sacrifice on every Catholic altar. It is that moment when the bread and wine are changed into Jesus' own body and blood. We then participate in that worship by bringing our own sacrifice of self, whether sorrow or praise. And thirdly, my take. The only evaluation that should be considered after a church or a mass is the evaluation of heart and actions. That is, did we grow in obedience to the royal law of love? Help us, Father. Hi, this is Dr. David Anders from EWTN's Call to Communion. I believe that the Ministry of Catholic Radio is one of the greatest tools we have in the Church for evangelism today. I hear from people all over the world on a daily basis who have encountered Christ in the Catholic Church for the first time by listening to Catholic Radio. Please support the Ministry of Catholic Radio today. Support Guadalupe Radio Network. And welcome back. 
Drive Time. This is your host, Adrian Fonseca. It's so good to be on with you today. Praise be to God. You know, we're having Dr. Jared Stout on with us. He's the author of two things of relevance to us today, many books and many articles. Uh, but to us today, the two books or two article, one article, one book that he's put out is The Beer Option, Brewing a Catholic Culture Yesterday and Today. And the, the pamphlet that he put out for Focus Missionaries over uh, in with, well, with the Focus Missionaries, A Catholic Approach to Alcohol. That's our conversation today. You know, one thing that I brought up in the last segment was uh, maybe I wanted to bring up an objection that I often hear. And I'm, I'm no, by no means saying that if someone doesn't want to drink, go ahead. You don't have to drink if you don't want to. Uh, however, one thing, the objection I've heard from people is... You know, I don't need to drink to have fun. And so if you need to drink to have fun, then you probably shouldn't be drinking. So I am a fun person anyway, so I don't need to drink. Uh, how would you respond to somebody who says, who says something like that? I'd say great. You know, there's, there's certainly no problem there. Um, you know, is is there a case to say, yes, you should drink? Well, I mean, obviously, you know, if we look at the deepest spiritual sense – you know, our Lord uh, draws upon wine for the sacrament, right? Um, and so there is a kind of sacred drinking. So we can say, well, in that sense, drinking is essential uh, to the spiritual life, right? In, in a kind of sacramental way. Is it essential for festivity? I, I would say that, you know, if we go back to my principles, feasting, fasting, friendship, right? So we've talked about them both. Ha have the right intention and then do it in moderation uh, and so that we, we have these periods of penance in which we're taking a step back so we're not too attached. What about the third one, friendship? Right. And, you know, when I have uh, had periods in my life when I have abstained from alcohol, you know, I felt the Lord inspiring me uh, to do so at different times. You know, I, I've noticed that it's a little bit harder to, to kind of get into to conversations with my friends and Maybe that's a limit, right? But, you know, if there is a kind of case for, for Catholic drinking, it is that it does kind of bind us together in a, in a deeper conversation and friendship with others. And, of course, it can ruin that, right? If you're drinking too much, well, then you're sort of breaking the bounds of, of the proper balance and moderation that's needed for friendship. But is there a way in which sitting down with, let's say I, I'm a guy sitting down with another guy and, and having a beer um, that really does kind of center the conversation. It does kind of open things up uh, in a way is alcohol necessary for that. Absolutely not. It's not necessary. So I would never tell somebody that they're doing wrong if they feel like they don't need to drink. And, and actually we could say that there is maybe a higher way of, of even sacrificing drinking um, for, for the glory and honor of God. And so if somebody feels inspired to that, I would say, by all means, yes, respond to that inspiration. Um, but alcohol can really be a part of Catholic culture when it helps us to enter into festivity and friendship. Absolutely, absolutely. I think of a Psalm 104, which you quote in your, in your pamphlet on a, a Catholic approach to alcohol. Uh, a, the, uh, it's a blessing from God to gladden the heart. It's a very beautiful thing to, to think about it in that way. And I think that's often the struggle, though, is because America has this anti-alcohol culture, especially with uh, the history of prohibition 
a history of uh, raising the drinking age to, to 21 or to 18 or to 21, yeah, to 21. And the and having that be the case, people don't know how much they can drink. They have no concept of this, and so they're scared to drink. And, and so people will say, okay, how much to drink? How much drinking is too much? It's kind of like uh, building a a mountain, right? To how many grains of sand before it's a it's now a mound? Before it's a hill? Before it's a mountain? Uh, sometimes it's hard to distinguish. How would you uh, just make those distinctions, Doctor Jared? Yeah. So in the book, the beer option, I try to lay out some principles, you know, and and I think one solid principle is don't drink alone. Right. And that and that came out even in the Chesterton quote. Right. So that you're drinking with others for the right occasion. I mean, I would say if you're in college, you know, this goes back to even the, the focus pamphlet, you know, don't go to drinking parties. Right. That that is an occasion of sin. So don't drink alone. Make sure you're in the right context that, that you're, you know, w- you know, with people who are Christians who want to drink responsibly. If you don't feel confident in that, then don't even go. Or if you're going to somewhere where people are not drinking responsibly, don't drink yourself then, you know. Um, and I would say it, it's good to drink in the context of a meal. You know, if we want to look back at the, the whole tradition of Catholic drinking in Europe, people were generally drinking with family, with friends, in the context of eating. And I think that that's a, that's a good balance there, right? And so you're not just sitting down to, to drink just to, you know, try to just drink a whole, a whole lot at, at once. Because you mentioned this, this, you know, culture against drinking in America, and, and we tend towards extremes. You know, why do the Puritans say don't drink at all? Or, you know, there's some like Baptists and, and, or Mormons. Like we have these religious groups that are really against drinking. They're reacting against excess, right? And so you have excess on one side and then a complete abandonment on the other. Well, virtue is in the mean. And that's what we're looking at as Catholics. Where, where is, you know, this moderation, this temperance that is a proper balance? Because you want to ensure that you never lose control. Now, People are very different in, in how much alcohol that they can drink. I'm a pretty small guy, you know, actually. And so for me, it's like two to three, and that's it, right? You know, like I, I can't think of an occasion, unless we're talking about you know, spread out over the whole course of a day, right? But, and I'm thinking of one occasion, I, you know, for me, more than three, that's too many. But there are guys who literally are twice my size, you know, twice my weight. So they can drink more than I can, you know? But you need to know, and Thomas Aquinas, I think you said you wanted to talk about Aquinas, right? You know, what does Aquinas say? That if, if you are impaired in your reasoning, it's actually a mortal sin. There are some people who say, you know, no, it's not a sin to drink too much. Well, that's false. I mean, when Paul lists the sins that keep you out of the kingdom of God, he actually says drunkenness. That's a mortal sin. And so some people would say, well, if, you know, I, I want to be far away from any occasion of mortal sin. Great. So that means know how much you can drink moderately and don't ever go farther than that. So that would be another kind of principle of mine. For me, I know it's too, generally two. I, I, I don't often, you know, have like a third drink. But if I do, I know that's my max. I'm not even ever going to consider, you know, more than three drinks. You know, everybody should have, you know, that kind of understanding. And you say, well, I've never, 
you know, drunk before, so I don't know. Well, just start out with a couple of drinks. And then, you know, I think from there you can say, okay, I'm eating food. I'm, this is spread out. And, you know, I'll move to a third drink. And, you know, but it's hard while you are drinking to kind of think, you know, okay, is this too many? And that, that's, I think you do have to have a firm limit mm-hmm. um, because that's one of the effects of alcohol is that the more that you drink, the more you think you can drink, right? And then it's kind of like too late. I mean, seriously, right? You know, it's, it's like the, the, the frog in, in the water, right? You don't recognize that you're starting to drink too much because it kind of, the, the effects of alcohol come on gradually as you continue to drink. So have a firm limit. And if you're not sure, we'll err on the side of less rather than more. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and also have an accountability partner. Right. You know, who's that for me? My wife, you know, she's like, you know what? Yeah, you're done. You know, and I'm not saying like, you know, I, I don't drink more than three. I've already said that. But, you know, somebody who kind of look at you and be like, you need to just be done. You know, that, that's helpful, mm-hmm. you know, that you they have somebody that you can trust and, and to keep you accountable there. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's very, very important. And, you know, it's interesting because I was thinking about. And maybe this is an apocryphal story. I'm not sure. But uh, I've heard a story about St. Augustine that apparently St. Augustine was not a big drinker. He was not a fan of of alcohol too much, but that he would make a point to always have a glass of wine in public at least once a year to show that he was not a heretic and did not uh, think (laughs) that that, uh, alcohol was bad. Do you know that story, if that's any truth to that story? Yeah, I've heard that as well. But the one that I've actually seen in writing was was by a church father writing under the name Augustine. So we call him Pseudo Augustine, mm. and there's multiple Pseudo Augustines. But uh, but this this particular figure, Pseudo Augustine, was writing to a monk, and he said, "I want you to have one drink every Sunday because you're fasting all week long, and Sunday is a day of festivity." And so I want you to have one drink on every Sunday. I quote that in my book, The Beer Option. And so there's a chance that those stories could be conflated. I'm I'm not sure. Um, But that's an amazing principle. You think, well, wait a second. Here's a a monk who's literally fasting, and he's being required by his spiritual father to have a drink on Sunday. And I think it's because um, it is actually a necessity for Catholics to celebrate, even culturally, on these days of festivity. Does that mean we're required to drink alcohol? Well, I've already gone back to say, well, we have the Eucharist, right? You know, which of course, in this case, it's the Lord's blood, which through the accidents of the precious blood, there is alcohol um, in those accidents. But beyond that, there's no requirement, but there is a requirement to feast, right? And so I think that's where we can go back to, you know, these examples from the church fathers. So whether that exact story from Augustine is true or not, and I have heard that before, but I can, I can at least give this example from the church father writing a pseudo Augustine. And there are others where they would insist upon having a drink on certain occasions for uh, upholding festivity and for not denying the goodness of created things, um, you Amen. know, such as alcohol. Amen. Uh, when we come back, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, the last segment we have here, we're going to talk about whether drunkenness is a sin. We talked about that briefly. We'll get a little bit more into that, plus some practical suggestions on how to do this well. All this and more coming up on Catholic Drive Time right after this. Hello, this is Steve Gleason with your one-minute tool for Catholic evangelism. Here's the question for your non-Catholic friend. Have you ever replaced pronouns in the Bible such as who, whom, whosoever, ye, you, etc., and replaced those words with your name and therefore 
or you personalize the Bible to yourself. Do you do that? Is that a safe way to read the Bible? Well, here's your three best friendship tools for Catholic evangelism. Number one, Bible complexity. Mechanics study motors. Architects study design. Linguists study syntax. But for the most part, Christians don't study the how-tos of safe biblical interpretation called hermeneutics. Secondly, Aquinas. In the Summa, we see the caution. Aquinas says of the Bible, quote, the manner of its speech transcends every science because in one and the same sentence, while it describes a fact, it reveals a mystery and thirdly a tough comeback. I know it seems plausible to simply say the Bible is a love letter straight from God to humanity, but wait a minute. A sentence or a paragraph in a love letter has context. Yes, with great caution, we can personalize some context, but remember, when you're at the central figure in the Bible, God isn't, and that's just wrong. Hey, Donnie, what are the mysteries that we pray on the rosary? Glorious, ominous, joyful, and powerful. There you go. As parents, we're the primary educators of our Catholic faith to our children. And if you don't know your Catholic faith as well as you should, that's okay. Just tune in daily to the Guadalupe Radio Network by logging online to grnonline.com. The Guadalupe Radio Network. Listen, learn, love, and pass it on. Catholic Drive Time. This is your host, Adrian Fonseca. It's so good to be on with you today. Praise be to God. Dr. Jared Stout, the author of The Beer Option, Brewing a Catholic Culture Yesterday and Today, plus the also the author of A Catholic Approach to Alcohol, a focus missionary uh, pamphlet that he has out there. I highly recommend checking that out. Focusquip.org is where you can find that. A excellent little pamphlet, but definitely get the, the beer option while you're at it. Very, very good. We were talking about all sorts of things in regards to the topic of drinking and things like that, but we have barely touched the surface of whether or not drunkenness is a mortal sin. I think most people would agree, but I think it's interesting the way St. Thomas divvies it up. He kind of divvies it up in three ways. He says drunkenness could be, in one sense, not a sin, but a, but a fault, a result of a fault. It can be a not a sin at all if you do it by, by accident. Or or it could be of a sin if you do it on purpose. And so tell me about this, Dr. Stout. Explain to me what St. Thomas means when he uh, makes these distinctions between drunkenness. Yes, so um, the key thing when it comes to morality is that we are judged based upon our free choice. right? So are we directing our choice towards what is truly good? Sin is not just an arbitrary breaking of the commandments, right? But it's an expression of our freedom in conformity with what is good or contradicting what is good. And that's why drunkenness is a grave matter because it strikes against the very root of morality that is our free choices. And in the beer option, I actually have a chapter on drunkenness and a whole other chapter on uh, drunkenness, and then the use of drugs. So beer versus marijuana, right, is, is one of my chapters there because um, the use of drugs and drunkenness both kind of strike at our rationality and our free choice. And so what Aquinas is essentially saying is that, you know, the, the first case, I think he was actually saying if somebody, it would be a fault if you didn't know the effects of alcohol in you. So it's a scenario we've already talked about. So I said, you know your limit and never, ever go past it. And he said, well, if, if you're drinking for the first time, let's say you have a glass of wine and, and you know, actually you have a frail constitution and you would get drunk off of one glass of wine, that would just be a fault because you didn't even know the effects of alcohol in you yet. Um, but um, when it comes to freely choosing to get drunk, 
right? That would be a mortal sin um, because you are choosing to be impaired in your rationality, in your freedom. Um, and that contradicts your own dignity, right? And it contradicts, the, you know, our morality because we know what happens when you get drunk. You do other things that are bad. And so somebody would say, well, I, I didn't choose to do that because I was drunk. And so I didn't know what I was doing. But that's the whole point. If you chose to get drunk, then you chose to impair your freedom. And then therefore you are responsible for the things that happened because you were drunk. Right. And so uh, Paul, once again, makes it very clear um, that uh, drunkenness is a mortal sin. It is one of the things that can keep us out of the kingdom of God, he says, and that's the definition of what a mortal sin is. And Aquinas is clear on that as well, right? When we're freely choosing to enter into drunkenness, we are responsible for this grave choice. And I think that's the important thing is the, the use of reason. And I want to focus in on that for a second. Uh, the use of reason is what distinguishes us from the animals and so it's very important to us that we keep the use of our reason. Uh, before we move on to the practical, uh, last question on the top of, topic of drunkenness, could you speak a little bit more about reason? You mentioned a little bit about drugs. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about that aspect? Yes. Yeah, so alcohol, as we know, can be used moderately. So when people say, you know, we just need to avoid alcohol because of the risk of excess. Well, the moral life in general is about making the right use of created things. Um, and so we can do that well with alcohol. That's what we're called to do. And if somebody were to discern, but I can't use alcohol well, and therefore I need to avoid it. Well, good. Make that choice then. But when it comes to drugs, people use drugs to get high, right? That is why they con consume them. Um, and that would be like drunkenness, right? So if you are getting high, you are being impaired in your rationality and in your free choice. Um, and so that's why drugs cannot be used moderately. Now, people will respond to me and say, well, can't the cannabis plant be used, you know, in, in proper ways? So, for instance, there have been people who have grown the cannabis plant to have very low levels of THC for medicinal purposes. Fine. Great. There's, obviously, there's nothing wrong with the cannabis plant per se. But using it to get high is another matter. And actually, there's even a, a pretty thorough study that came out recently to say that it's not even effective uh, for the use of pain. Uh, what it does is it distracts you from pain rather than actually addressing pain itself. Oh, that's so th that's a pretty big topic, and, and I've been foolish enough to wade into that and get blasted <laughs> from all these corners. Yeah, and no, no. Uh, but it is something that I do address in the book, The Beer Option. Very good, very good. So let's transition into the topic of, okay, how do we do this well? You've talked to college students in the past, and you mentioned to stay away from drinking parties. So then what's the answer then? How do we drink well and orderly? You know, I actually think that the family is the right way um, to practice Catholic drinking. And if you actually look at the at the beer garden, which grew up in, in Germanic countries in Europe, the beer garden was something that was done after church on Sunday. Families would gather together for picnics outside and would drink beer in that context, right? So it's Sunday. It's the right day of the week, the day of festivity. Um, in, in relationship and friendship and families. Okay, so that's in the right context, not a drinking party. Nobody's trying to get drunk at, at this beer garden after church on Sunday. It's with food, right? And, and so 
that is the, the kind of approach that we need and that you need to be drinking with people that you trust, your friends, your family. You need to be doing it on the right occasion, that you're doing it for the right purpose, not an escape. You're not going off into a corner by yourself and trying to wash away your problems, right? You are doing it to promote good things in your life. And actually, you know, in most states, so make sure you know your state laws, <laughs> in, in most states in the United States, it is legal to drink with your kids in your home. And so I would say to parents, teach your kids the Catholic approach to alcohol. You know, don't have alcohol be this taboo thing. And then they go off to college and they're trying to, before they're even 21, they're trying to sneak it and they're experimenting. They don't know the effects of alcohol and they're going to these drinking parties. No, stem that off and do what they do in Europe. Teach your kids how to drink. Um, and like I said, that's check out your state laws. A lot of parents are surprised. Wait, that's legal? Yes, it is. And almost, you know, like I said, almost all states. So I think that that's how we need to approach alcohol as Catholics. Hey, Jared, this is Tito. I, I've got a maybe this may be a technical question, but uh, and I, I'm sure many people have, may have this question on, on the tip of their tongues. But uh, I, I have a men's group and we get together, recite poetry and and people bring their pipes and cigars and and uh, and and, uh, and a beer sometimes. But I was curious what beer uh, is good for engaging in good conversation. Would it be an ale? Would it be a lager? Uh, do you have an, any idea uh, whatsoever or, or recommendations if, if, if it's uh, nothing official? Well, the, the beer option, my book, grew out of drinking uh, monastery beers with my friends. Aww. And so I definitely recommend that. If you go to my website, buildingcatholicculture.com, I have a, a list of all the monastery beers in the world, whether it's Benedictine, Franciscan, Trappist, you know, uh, a lot of Norbertine beers, actually. So I have them all listed on my website. Um, and that's actually the most popular web page on my website. You'll never, you'd never <laughs> guess that, right? You know? So I would say that men's groups should, should really explore the tradition of Catholic brewing. And then what are you doing? You're supporting religious by drinking these beers. So uh, it's really a great thing to do. Absolutely, absolutely. I love that. My my friends actually do something similar. I didn't. I got to go check out your article because we go out of our way to make sure that we're purchasing uh, beer from from Catholics as much as we possibly can. I think that's a great practice. And, you know, it's 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 kind of funny. You were talking a second ago about about parents and family and kids, things like that. And it's funny to me because I was told by a friend of mine who doesn't drink so much anymore. He's my age. I'm 25, and he said, "Yeah, after I turned 21." Uh, drinking just wasn't as fun. It wasn't as interesting to me anymore. And I think that's so true because you mentioned it being a taboo in our culture. And so people turn 21 or they go off to college and they're like, oh, yeah, now is the time to drink. I'm 18, away from home, sneaking the drink. But if it becomes just a very mundane, normal thing in your family life, I could see why that would absolutely uh, kind of de de-emphasize these situations where people uh, get drunk they go off to college and get totally wasted and things like that and i think that's very interesting uh to me to, to see those kind of things happening uh what would you have any further comments on that yeah i i think it's it's a great opportunity for parents to really stem off a lot of those problems and once again this this is how um 
traditionally Catholic countries drink, right? It is a, it's just a part of the fabric of life. It's part of their celebration. Um, they drink mostly in the context of meals, whether it's beer in Northern Europe or wine in, in Southern Europe. And we can build up a good habit of how to approach alcohol um, for young people. Once again, if it's in the context of families and then for us as men, I think in the context of men's groups, it's a, a great way to, to kind of drink um, with our friends and for the right reasons. Absolutely. Uh, last question. Uh, please let me know anything that uh, you would like on buildingcatholicculture.com or your book, anything you'd like to plug uh, right here. Yeah, I would say, you know, my most recent book is How the Eucharist Can Save Civilization. And, and in a way, I think I'm, I'm trying to redeem myself after writing this Catholic book on beer. So anyway, I have a book on drinking as a Catholic and now a book on eating as a Catholic. And what do we eat? Most fundamentally, we eat the Lord's body. And, and that really turns us into him, right? We become one with him. We are members of his body, transformed in our communion with him. And that should shape everything that we do, that we should live as Christ in the world. And, and I, to come back to our topic at hand, right, you know, you are Christ in the world. You, you, the church is the continuing incarnation of Christ in the world. So how does that shape the way that you eat? How does it shape the way that you drink? And that can be a really great examination of conscience, even as we approach alcohol. You know, is the Lord the one inspiring the way that you approach alcohol? Are you giving glory to God through him? And this is a whole nother avenue that we haven't talked about. Beer is a means of evangelization, right? That we, we can draw other men into conversation through beer. We can invite them to events through a men's group. We can do a theology on tap. We can do an Oktoberfest event at our parish, right? That all of these uh, events and opportunities are ways of helping people to encounter the faith in a different way because a lot of people say, oh, the Catholic faith, that's boring, you know? Absolutely. But we say, no, right? There's a different way of approaching the Catholic faith. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Stout, for being on with us. That's going to do it. Check out his book, The Beer Option. That's going to do it for the first hour of Catholic Time. If you can stay with us, we'll be right back with more right after this. I worked in pro baseball for a long time and we play on Sundays. And it was an easy excuse. I took the easy out and just didn't go to mass. Got caught up on that whole selfishness, that whole, you know, um, I can do it all. The times when I was struggling were the times I needed God the most. And now that uh, I've come back and accepted God, my world has completely changed. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for any reason, Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. Hello, this is Steve Gleason with your one-minute tool for Catholic evangelism. Here's the question for your non-Catholic friend. Who are the ten most well-known preachers in America? Well, here's your three best friendship tools for Catholic evangelism. Here's the list. Copeland, Osteen, Benny Hinn, Joyce Myers, T.D. Jakes, Stephen Furtick, Andy Stanley, Robert Jeffers, Rick Warren, Alistair Begg, John MacArthur. Well, secondly, all these pastors say the same thing on Sunday morning, which is, turn with me in your Bible. Well, then how's the harmony regarding, say, eternal security, disagreement, present-day ministry of the Holy Spirit, Disagreement. Relationship of baptism to salvation. Disagreement. Church government. Disagreement. Life beginning at conception until natural death. Disagreement. And eschatology. Disagreement. So what's going on here? Well, if you are someone who says, all I need is the word of God, brother, because the Bible is going to give me everything I need to live out the Jesus life. Okay. Hope you've already ditched your favorite blogger, your favorite preacher, your favorite podcaster, and most of all, your religious Google searches. Well, speaking of Google searches, I do request one last Google search for you. Magisterium. 
I don't know why I turned on my radio because I've kept my radio off for years. And once I turned it on, I was absolutely hooked. I love the shows with the Catholic apologists. I love the shows with the sort of day-to-day psychologist, Greg and Lisa Popchek. I love hearing not just of other people's problems who call in, but I love getting the Catholic take on how to deal with day-to-day reality. The Guadalupe Radio Network, radio for your soul. Celebrating 2,000 years of truth, this is the Guadalupe Radio Network, radio for your soul. Hi, I'm Amanda Smith, Assistant Principal at St. Elizabeth Ann Seton Catholic School, and you're listening to AM 1430 KSHJ Houston, part of the Guadalupe Radio Network, radio for your soul day to be here. So glad to be here with you. You know, there's a lot of things that are very concerning and people kind of are not aware of how we got here. They're saying they look to themselves and they say, the world is so crazy. And yet they are not able to figure out how we got here. And I think of like the crazy situation with LGBT ideology. People are like, how on earth did we get to the point where men think that men can become women and women can become men? Like, that's just so far out. Or you see people pretending to be animals and people trying to <laughs> marry their dogs and cats. And we have gay marriage going on. And joining us to talk about this issue is Mary Eberstadt. She is the author of a number of books, uh, Primal Screams. How the Sexual Revolution Created Identity Politics and Adam and Eve After the Pill, which just got a republishing uh, with Ignatius Press. So thank you for joining us, Mrs. Eberstadt. Hello. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, Mrs. Eberstadt, we, I think this is a very interesting topic because, like I said, many people don't, are just kind of flabbergasted. They woke up. It seems to them that we woke up one day and everybody lost their mind. But that's not the case, is it? No, it isn't. And what people really have to understand is that the world was not always this way. This crisis that we're seeing, this marriage crisis, this identity crisis that we're seeing not only in the United States, but across all the societies of the Western world, this has all been six decades in the making, Adrian, and it goes back, I believe, to the widespread adoption of contraception beginning in the early 1960s. And we can walk through the steps from there to here, but the the most important conclusion is to understand that this thing that was supposed to liberate people instead led us to where we are today. So, in other words, instead of being this hoped-for liberation, contraception paradoxically turned out to create the marriage crisis by flooding the zone with potentially available sexual partners. And this is one of the things that I explain in Adam and Eve after the pill revisited because this is not well understood. But perfectly secular economists looking at the situation have understood that contraception was a game changer that led to higher rates of abortion, divorce, uh, broken homes, fatherless homes than the world had ever seen before. And this crisis has been building over the decades so that now we are so confused that we have problems we also never had before that you mentioned in the opening, men thinking they can be women, women thinking they can be men. 
all of this is happening because of what started in the 1960s, the sexual revolution. So let's start there then. The 1960s, it's, uh, people kind of have these rose-colored glasses. I was talking to our business manager, David Magianis, earlier, and we were just chatting, and I was saying, you know, it's kind of strange, because uh, me and myself, I'm, I'm fairly young. I'm 25 years old, and my I talk to people all the time, and people are like, oh, yeah, you know, our grandparents, maybe they were right about some things. And I'm thinking, well, maybe our grandparents' grandparents were right about some things, because they, we look back at that time, and people were warning, oh, if we do this, it's going to be a really bad situation. They say, oh, no, that's just a slippery slope argument. And now looking backwards... Perhaps it was not a slippery slope argument. It was just a logical conclusion to the action. So let's begin the 1960s. What was happening and what, how did it lead to where we're at? Well, first came the technological, excuse me, the technological shock of the birth control pill. This is very reliable contraception for the first time ever. And it becomes a kind of gateway drug to a lot of the social dissolution that follows. But it is so tempting. You know, if you were to ask many people, what would you like more than anything else in life? Many would say, how about sex without consequences? How about sex without pregnancy? And that's what the birth control pill offered. And it's small wonder that this temptation proved overwhelming to the majority of Western people. And so, again, at the beginning, this was supposed to be a liberation. But not everybody thought that. This is a very important point. In 1968, the papal encyclical Humanae Vitae appeared, and it was, of course, hugely controversial. It was a restating of 2,000 years of church teaching against contraception. But what that document did was to make several predictions about what the world would look like once the sexual revolution took hold. It predicted that men and women would become more distrustful of each other. It predicted that oppressive governments would use birth control technology coercively on their populations. And it predicted that there would be an overall lowering of moral standards across the world because of this change. Now, at the time, as I say, this was controversial. The document has been mocked eternally, uh, but... If you wanted to ask what single document predicted the world to come after 1968, you would have to say Humanae Vitae, because look at the world around us. Look at what you opened with, Adrian. We are surrounded by confusion and brokenness on an order that did not exist before, and Humanae Vitae saw it coming. Absolutely, and it's it's very interesting to me because... When we hear about these problems, you're thinking, okay, well, the, the conventional wisdom is we need to promote more contraception, especially, and we hear this a lot from Protestants, especially pro-lifers, so that way we can prevent abortion. So use contraception instead. I'm, people, Protestants will often say things like, I'm for three choices, uh, birth, adoption, and contraception. But tell me, Mrs. Eberstadt, why that is a foolhardy plan of action to try to advocate for uh, contraception as a cure to a lot of our ills. Well, I get into this in more detail in Adam and Eve after the pill revisited. But in a nutshell, that's a completely false argument. And the proof is this. In every society that normalized contraception, 
which is to say every Western society, most societies around the world at this point, in every single case, abortion was quickly legalized. In the United States, I think there was a span of about eight years before we got Roe versus Wade. And in other countries around the world, you see the same pattern. Now, why would this be? And the answer is that abortion was needed as a backstop if there were contraceptive, quote, failures, as there always are. And so there is a very tight connection there between the adoption of contraception and the increase in abortion rates around the world. So far from preventing abortion, which is what Margaret Sanger argued, far from it, contraception increases abortion. Absolutely, absolutely. It's it's very it's it's a logical conclusion because if if you need birth control to try to prevent birth, well then if you the birth control fails, well then what's the next step? You got to get rid of the baby somehow, and the best way is to uh, murder it. So I mean, it's the next. It's a logical conclusion, and people uh, just are are allergic to trying to think. Uh, from premises to conclusions. Now, I think the other thing that's interesting is how this reached divorce and how this kind of caused this epidemic of divorce. We get no-fault divorce coming soon after. Uh, Explain that situation to me. Well, again, this is because, as economists have explained, when you have suddenly a marketplace full of potential partners out there, without consequence because contraception has taken care of the risk of pregnancy, when you have that situation, you have inadvertently but really reduced the incentive, especially for men, to settle down with any individual person. The temptation is just all pervasive. And in focusing on this, I'm not trying to point fingers or stigmatize. What I'm trying to get at is that The world that we have created by living this way is a world in which suffering is increased. The suffering of children in broken homes or without fathers, and I think the suffering of of partners, romantic partners, because of the increase in distrust that was, again, talked about in Humanae Vitae. Absolutely, absolutely. And no, it's, it's also interesting you bring that up because the situation I've seen among a lot of young people is that they do not want to get married until they're much, much older. And I think one element of that, and you can uh, give me your commentary on this, is that I think that a lot of people are, are content with, with cohabitating, with shacking up, with having premarital sex without consequence, quote-unquote. And, and because of that, they are putting off marriage. Whereas before, you know, as St. Paul says, it is better for you to marry than to burn with lust. And so I think a lot of times people would get married earlier because they wanted to move towards the marital act and they were not going to do it beforehand. And so getting rid of that consequence made it so everybody gets married when they're 40 and it's a detriment to our society. Uh, What are your thoughts about that situation? Well, I think all of that is also true and that there are different forces in play here. One thing that we really have to be aware of is what a consumerist, materialistic society we live in. And I bring that up because what I often hear from young people, especially young women, is that their parents tell them, Mm. don't get married early, right? Establish your career, be financially set. And of course, for young women especially, this is terrible advice because young women, unlike young men, have a certain amount of time in which to have, have a family in the first place. 
And so uh, this is one of the more unseen destructive features of our society, I think. But the emphasis on acquiring material wealth first and then starting a family is backfiring and it's making a lot of people unhappy. Absolutely. And, you know, the that's interesting you say that because I, I've heard this many times and it's like a very difficult conversation to bring up to people because, like you said there, it's kind of told to them even by their parents. And I think that's very concerning. So what would you tell to a young lady who is in that kind of situation? Maybe they're open to hearing the someone telling you, okay, well, you need to, you need to get married. You'll be happier that way. But everyone else is telling her, go pursue your career, make your money, get your experiences first, and then get married when you're older. What would you tell her? I would tell her, you can have it all. You just can't have it all at once. And when people think about postponing children and family life, there are things they're not seeing there. They're not seeing the the years of love, for example, that children bring into parents' lives. And they're not seeing that having 60 years of love because you started when you were in your 20s might be better than having 15 years of love toward the end of your life. And these are calculations that we don't really talk about, but leaving church teaching quite aside, it is clear that the fulfillment of family is something that's intrinsically wonderful and that postponing it doesn't make sense. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, we're one more question before we have to go to a quick break, and uh, then when we come back, we have uh, much, much more we want to cover. But the situation with the with the divorce rates, uh, there is a common myth that you know divorce is okay. The kids will be happier if they just have their parents. Uh, their parents are happy, so it's okay to get divorced. What would you say? Well, there's a lot of research to suggest that divorce is bad for kids. And again, this isn't a matter of finger pointing or trying to get people to stay in abusive situations or anything like that. Since the 1960s, there's been a lot of social science about the fallout to children of biological parents who break up. And this raises the risks of all kinds of things, truancy, drug use, promiscuity, uh, criminality. This is a very well-known fact, and it's one that nobody wants to talk about because we are surrounded, of course, by broken homes. But we need to, again, put the happiness of those children front and center, I think, in order to see clearly uh, what people don't want to talk about here. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, we're going to go to a quick break. When we come back, more with Mary Eberstadt. There is, uh, this is a pre-recorded show, so no game show today. Normally, we'd have our game show Fear and Trembling, our Catholic trivia game show coming up. But for today, we're going to have our interview with Mary Eberstadt, talking about her two books, Adam Eve and After, this, After the Pill and Primal Screams. All this and more when we come back on Catholic Drive Time. Don't go anywhere.
Wouldn't it be great if everyone read the Catechism of the Catholic Church? Why not start today? A friendly suggestion from Guadalupe Radio Network. Hello, this is Steve Gleason with your one-minute tool for Catholic evangelism. Here's the question for your non-Catholic friend. Could there be just one word that truly sets the Catholic Church apart from all other churches? Yes, there is. Well, here's your three best friendship tools for Catholic evangelism. That word is retain. How can one word bring such distinction? Well, understanding that retain means to hold back or to keep. Jesus tells the apostles, if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Secondly, so what does that world say about sin? The therapist says, forgive yourself. New Agers say it's just a state of mind. And the evangelical says, just tell Jesus no matter how grave the sin, he'll forgive you directly. And finally, the word retain. We all know that non-Catholics don't go to a pastor to confess grave sins. Why? Because in Protestant thinking, you get to leapfrog humans and go directly to Jesus. And guys, let's don't hide under the newest term, be accountable. Hey, we all will be accountable up to the point that it hurts, is embarrassing, or is criminal. My priest can say, Steve, your sin's not forgiven. Does your pastor? I think not. Why? Have you ever heard backlash, decreasing church attendance, and loss of revenue? For victory in life, we've got to keep focused on the goal, and the goal is heaven. The key to winning is choosing to do God's will and love others with all you've got. Sacrifice, discipline, and prayer are essential. We gain strength through God's Word, and we receive grace from the sacraments. And when we fumble due to sin, and it's going to happen, confession puts us back on the field. So if you haven't been going to Mass weekly, get back in the game. We're saving your seat on the starting bench this Sunday. Welcome home. And welcome back to Catholic Drive Time. This is your host, Adrian Fonseca. It's so good to be on with you today. Praise be to God. You know, there are a lot of interesting things that are going on in the world. You know, Chinese proverb, may you live in interesting times. And this certainly is interesting times. Now, normally we'd be having our game show, Fear and Trembling, where we give out prizes and we ask Catholic trivia questions. It's a great time. But for today, we're having our interview, a pre-recorded interview with Mary Eberstadt about her two books, her books, Adam and Eve After the Pill and Primal Screams, How the Sexual Revolution Created Identity Politics. And these conversations, I think, are very, very important, especially how it affects our kids, because we see the effects. And I first was exposed to this, honestly, by Dr. Janet Smith and her great talk. Um, I believe it's contraception. Why not? And in it, she she made a point that just kind of struck me a little bit, even though I myself, as not a woman, I don't experience this personally, but it just struck me as something that I was so profound and something I never would have ever considered. She talks about how the pill is pushed on young ladies at the youngest age as a cure for acne, as a cure to regulating their cycles, as a cure for everything. And it turns out that it has a ton of horrible effects on young ladies including making uh, changing their pheromones where it makes them less attractive to men and i was like whoa that's very interesting uh, what do you know anything about this mrs everstadt and uh, what would you say about those situations of these forcing of these pills on young ladies well i have great respect for the work of janet smith she's a real hero and the forcing of the pill on young women is bad for the reasons that you cite because of the physical effects for starters. But it's also bad, I think, in another way because it sends the message that you are a problem that needs fixing somehow. Mm. And it's a very short step from that to other forms of what's called cosmetic pharmacology, right? Whether they are mood enhancers 
or all the way down the road to transgender hormones. So by sending that message that you're something that needs medicating, there's something wrong with you, in this case your fertility, I think society is undermining long-term happiness for people and especially for young women. You know, it's interesting you say that, and because uh, immediately you say that, and I'm thinking you mentioned transgender surgery and transgender hormones, and you know, okay, so that's interesting because the pill basically is a sort of transgender chemical castration because it's trying to make a woman into a man because the man is uh, someone who can engage in the marital act without uh, having to worry about pregnancy. And the goal of the pill is to make the woman like a man. Uh, do you see that connection there? What, what would you say about that? Absolutely, yes. I think the danger here is that um, contraception takes something that is intrinsically beautiful, which is fertility, which is co-creation, participation in the divine plan, and says that it's a problem. It says that there's something wrong with this. And implicitly what it's saying is the men are saying to the women, there's something wrong with you. I mean, it's the very definition of the patriarchy. If you think about it, if the patriarchy were to exist, that's what it would look like. It would look like men telling women that something drastic has to happen because you need to be fixed. So again, this kind of message undermines self-esteem, I think. I think it is part of the reason that young women today have record levels of anxiety and depression. It's because they have absorbed messages about how they are a problem in need of repair. Hey, Mary, the, Mrs. Mary Bristad, this is Tito Edwards. You, you just uh, got into the question that I wanted to ask you in, in your studies of the pill and human behavior uh, from that. I remember when I was uh, a heathen Catholic, right after college, my friends and I were indulging in the culture, but we were also making observations that some of the ladies uh, we would encounter, we noticed them, it's now looking back, it just seemed as if they seemed a bit more high-strung or having difficulty in relationships because it's been my experience from now being a Catholic of, of 12 plus years that, that uh, men and women are wired differently when it comes to sex. And it, it, it seems not necessarily the pill, but the pill does have an effect. But w women having multiple partners, it seemed to have a detrimental effect on the mental state of mind. Have you come across anything uh, along those lines uh, as far as being harmful for women? Yes, there's a lot of social science on this, actually. And again, it comes from perfectly secular professors. One example uh, is a book called Unprotected by a doctor named Miriam Grossman, who worked in a campus health center and kept seeing young women show up with all kinds of problems, alcoholism, depression, anxiety. And the common denominator here was promiscuous sex. There's just no sugarcoating it. What these women had in common was that they were on campuses flooded with contraceptive technologies and messages that this is all healthy recreation. And by going down that road, they were emerging with psychological problems on, on a major scale. So that's one example of the tie-in between these things. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think these things are, are very concerning and the, I think of the average person where they might be hearing this conversation 
and they may be saying, you're, you're kind of blowing my mind right now. I've never heard these things. This is a hard pill to swallow, so to speak. And so how would you tell somebody who's hearing these ideas for the first time and try to say, hey, look, I'm not saying that, that you're an evil person for engaging in these situations, uh, but instead I'm calling you to be more fully who you are. Uh, what would you say to someone in that situation? Well, first I would start with empathy. You know, we've all grown up in the world that the 1960s created. Pretty soon, there will not be people alive who remember life before the sexual revolution. I certainly don't, and I'm not meaning to glamorize it and say, let's go back to the 1950s. Instead, I'm just asking people to understand why the world is the way it is today, why we see so much unhappiness and loneliness. It's because... Over time, humanity has subtracted people out of individual people's lives. That's what the sexual revolution did. Abortion took away people's sons, daughters, siblings, fatherless homes, took the man out of the house. Shrinking families mean that people have fewer brothers, sisters, and cousins to look to for love and support. We have to understand that we inflicted this wound on ourselves. And I think putting it that way takes the stigma out of behavior because what I'm trying to do is say, look, let's look at this world together and let's understand how we got here. And that this is a joint project that I think sooner or later all of humanity is going to have to reckon with because the problems brought on by the sexual revolution are only intensifying. And on that note, I'm very encouraged to see that over the past few years, as I mentioned in Adam and Eve After the Pill Revisited, there have been a number of books written by women in different countries, successful, best-selling books, starting to ask these questions outside the religious realm, starting to ask questions about why is it so hard to find a good boyfriend? Uh, why do things seem so confused these days? Uh, will I really be happier if I don't have children? And it's a good sign, not a bad one. On the other hand, it means that we have reached what I think is a, a point of uh, second thoughts. And I don't think that's going to be reversed. I think we're going to be seeing more of that. And that's a good thing. Absolutely. You know, last question before we have to say goodbye. If you, you ask the, you answer the question, or and I suppose you propose the question as well, and Primal Screams, when people have an identity crisis, they say, who am I? And the, this is the ultimate situation we find ourselves in today. Everyone's lost. They don't know who they are. How, how would you guide them? How would you help them? I would help them by trying to give them an understanding of how we got here. It's the same question that we started with. And that question, who am I, is universal. It comes up for every individual in every age. And since the 1960s, we have really knocked the struts out of personal identity. We've done this in two ways. One, by the decline of the family, and two, by the simultaneous decline in many places of Christianity itself. Both of these primal communities, the family and the faith, gave people ways of answering that question, who am I? Who am I? I'm a mother, I'm a sister, I'm an aunt, I'm a cousin. That's one way of answering the question. Or, who am I? I'm a child of God. That's a religious person's way of answering the question. 
And we have to understand that a lot of people no longer have access to those kinds of building blocks of identity. There is a lot of hurt out there, and I think if we can just name it in a way that makes sense to people, which is what I'm trying to do, we can get some revisionist thinking going on and hopefully repair some of the damage. Uh, thank you very much, Mrs. Eberstadt. Uh, it's just about all the time we have. Where can people get in touch with you? Where can people find out more information? Oh, thank you. I have a website, maryeberstadt.com, that has information about all of the books and articles and essays, etc. cetera. Uh, also, the books are all available on Amazon and uh, at Ignatius Press for the new one, Adam and Eve After the Pill Revisited. Well, thank you very much, Mrs. Eberstadt. It's been a blessing to talk with you. And I know more and more people need to hear this message now more than ever. We're in a great confusion, and I think you're providing so much clarity. So thank you, and God bless you. Thank you, Tito and Adrian. Really enjoyed it. Absolutely. And that's going to do it for the radio side. Well, that's going to do it for the show today because no after show today. Uh, praise be to God. If you want, you can join us tomorrow morning, as always, 6 a.m. Central, 7 Eastern, across the Guadalupe Radio Network. And you can stay connected with us. Go to grnonline.com forward slash CDT, grnonline.com forward slash CDT to stay connected with us. God bless you. God love you. And I hope you have a blessed day. God love you. And remember, Christ is risen. Truly, he is risen. Alleluia. Alleluia. God bless you. God love you. And we'll see you soon. on your Catholic Drive Time, where it is our pleasure to keep you informed and inspired. Join us Monday through Friday at the same time, right here on your favorite Catholic radio station. Your Catholic Drive Time, where it is our pleasure to keep you informed and inspired. Join us Monday through Friday at the same time, right here on your favorite Catholic radio station. Don't forget to connect with us. Just go to facebook.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time. Be sure to share more than just us today. Share Jesus with everyone you meet. Bye now, and God love you. Guadalupe Radio Network now brings you the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass from the chapel at Our Lady of Corpus Christi in Corpus Christi, Texas. Thou burning sun with golden beam, thou silver moon with softer gleam, oh, praise him, oh, praise him. 
Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Brothers and sisters, let us call to mind our sins and so prepare ourselves to celebrate the sacred mysteries. I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned in my thoughts and in my words in what I have done and in what I have failed to do, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. Therefore I ask, Blessed Mary, ever-Virgin, all the angels and saints, and you, my brothers and sisters, to pray for me to the Lord our God. May Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us our sins, and bring us to everlasting life. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy, Christ, have mercy, Lord, have mercy, Lord, have mercy. Let us pray. O God, who surround us with protection through the glorious confession of the martyrs, Saints Marcellinus and Peter, grant that we may profit by imitating them and be upheld by their prayer. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. A reading from the book of Sirach. Now will I praise those godly men, our ancestors, each in his own time. But of others there is no memory, for when they seized, they seized. And they are as though they live, had not lived, they and their children after them. Yet these also were godly men, whose virtues have not been forgotten. Their wealth remains in their families, their heritage with their descendants. Through God's covenant with them, their family endures, their prosperity for their sake. And for all time, their progeny will endure. Their glory will never be blotted out. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord takes delight in his people. The Lord takes delight in his people. Sing to the Lord a new song of praise in the assembly of the faithful. Let Israel be glad in their maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. The Lord, the Lord takes, takes delight, delight in, in his people. people. Let them praise his name in the festive dance. Let them sing praise to him with tremble and harp. For the Lord loves his people, and he adorns the lowly with victory. The Lord, the Lord takes, takes delight in his, in his people. Let the faithful exult in glory. Let them sing for joy upon their couches. Let the high praises of God be in their throats. 
This is the glory of all his faithful. The, the Lord, Lord takes, takes the light in his people. Alleluia, alleluia. I chose you from the world to go and bear fruit that will last, says the Lord. Alleluia, alleluia. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple area. He looked around at everything and since it was already late went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day as they were leaving Bethany he was hungry. Seeing from a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went over to see if he could find anything on it. When he reached it he found nothing but leaves. It was not the time for figs. And he said to it in reply, May no one ever eat of your fruit again. And his disciples heard it. They came to Jerusalem, and on entering the temple area, he began to drive out those selling and buying there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. He did not permit anyone to carry anything through the temple area. Then he taught them, saying, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples, but you have made it a den of thieves. The chief priests and the scribes came to hear of it and were seeking a way to put him to death. Yet they feared him because the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. Early in the morning, as they were walking along, they saw the fig tree withered to its roots. Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus said to them in reply, Have faith in God. Amen, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it shall be done for him. Therefore I tell you, all that you ask for in prayer, believe that you will receive it, and it shall be yours. When you stand to pray, forgive anyone against whom you have a grievance, so that your heavenly Father may in turn forgive you your transgressions. The Gospel of the Lord. <clears throat> morning's gospel we have a couple of interesting episodes in Jesus's time with his apostles we kind of encounter a sort of fired up Jesus we maybe could say we can see the humanity of Jesus's emotions and the temple being uh, struck with a little bit of anger over what he's seeing that the house of God is being turned into a place for money changers to make a profit and we see Jesus cursing the fig tree for not bearing fruit at the appropriate moment when he was hungry and ready to eat. Of course, we know that Jesus is instructing us through these lessons as well. With respect to the first and the fig tree, what we can see in the first place is that in Jesus's cursing of the fig tree and the fig tree subsequently withered to the root, it is a reminder to us that ultimately 
Jesus, because he's true God and true man, he has the power to destroy his enemies as he would please. And what it's going to highlight is that when Jesus goes to the cross and submits himself to the hands of men, he had the power to do otherwise if he wanted. But he willingly submits himself and subjects himself to the cruelty and torture of men in order to manifest the depth of God's love to us by his journeying to the cross in order to overcome death for our sake. The second dimension of the lesson from the fig tree is Jesus leading them to the power of prayer and faith in God. And Jesus says, if you would have faith, you could have this mountain move from here to there and it would obey you. Jesus is inviting his apostles to a faith that ultimately will govern all of their lives and instruct the entirety of their lives. It's interesting, too, that the caveat Jesus gives there is once again that criteria of prayer that we have to be able to forgive one another. He tells them, if you have faith, you can move mountains, but make sure you forgive people as you ask God to be able to forgive you. Jesus points to the power of faith. It should instruct our lives. It should guide our lives. And finally, with respect to the fig tree, we can say that while the fig tree did not have fruit in that particular moment when Jesus came up to it, it is a reminder to us that our lives ought to be filled with good spiritual and moral fruit in all seasons. We ought to be ready to meet Jesus that when the Lord comes to us to demand an account for the fruits of our lives, that we would be a ripened tree ready to say, Lord, my life is filled with faith. My life is filled with your love, and here are the fruits of the life that I have built. It's an image of our encounter with Jesus at the end of our life. With respect to the temple, again, we see Jesus kind of fired up here and angry that they are turning the house of God into a place of profit, into a thieves' den where people are hoodwinking one another on exchange rates, etc. For us, it is a reminder that St. Paul is going to teach us that, indeed, our body is called to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. In fact, we know when Jesus says, I'll take this temple and tear it down and rebuild it in three days, he's referring to the temple of his body. And indeed, for we Christians in our baptism, we are called to become and do indeed become temples of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, today we can ask ourselves, if Jesus were to look into the temple of our heart, what kind of whips would he pull out to say this needs to go because it is not concomitant with a temple of God? It does not fit together with the temple of God. Perhaps we could say that the whips that he ties together would be frayed with the edges of the Ten Commandments that would be going around and saying, how is our life being lived in accordance with the commandments of God and in accordance with the love of God? And anything which is not of God, then we ought to have the same urgency as zeal, as, and zeal as Jesus did in purifying the temple that we would have in purifying the temple of our body. Say we're meant to be a temple of the Holy Spirit, and we ought to be urgent and zealous in rooting out anything which is not in accordance or fitting to be a temple of God. And so, my brothers and sisters, as we go forward today, let us ask God for an increase in our faith, that we would trust God in all things, that we would truly allow faith 
and his charity to govern and to lead our lives so that we would have fruit always pleasing to the Lord present. And let us pray that we would always treat our bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit, cleansed and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Trusting in our Father's love and mercy, let us bring our petitions before him. We pray for our Holy Father, Pope Francis, and for all bishops, for their physical and spiritual needs. We pray to the Lord. We pray for government leaders that they would be inspired by the Holy Spirit to enact just laws that would safeguard and promote the dignity of human life from the first moment of conception and laws which would never transgress the natural law. We pray to the Lord. For the sick and the suffering, that they would be given consolation in their faith and experience the healing touch of Jesus Christ. We pray to the Lord. For our family, friends, and benefactors, for those who have asked for our prayers, for all those enrolled in the Salt Mass Association, we pray to the Lord. And for all those present here, those joining us online and through Guadalupe Radio Media, we pray to the Lord. And for those intentions that we hold in our heart, we pray to the Lord. Merciful Father, we thank you for hearing our petitions and granting our prayers through Christ our Lord. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have received the bread we offer you. Fruit of the earth and work of human hands, it will become for us the bread of life. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have received the wine we offer you. Fruit of the vine and work of human hands, it will become our spiritual drink. Pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. Merciful God, pour out your blessing upon these offerings and confirm us in faith that blessed Marcellinus and Peter professed by the shedding of their blood through Christ our Lord. The Lord be with you. Lift up your heart. 
we lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and just. It is truly right and just, our duty and our salvation, always and everywhere to give you thanks. Lord, Holy Father, Almighty and Eternal God, for you are glorified when your saints are praised. Their very sufferings are but wonders of your might. In your mercy you give ardor to their faith. To their endurance you grant firm resolve. And in their struggle the victory is yours through Christ our Lord. Therefore, all creatures of heaven and earth sing a new song in adoration. And we with all the hosts of angels cry out, and without end we acclaim. Sanctus, Sanctus, Sanctus Dominus Deus Sabaho. Plenis uncele et terra, gloria tua, hosanna in excelsis, benedictus, qui venit in nomine domini, hosanna in excelsis. You are indeed holy, O Lord the fount of all holiness. Make holy, therefore, these gifts we pray, by sending down your Spirit upon them like the dewfall, so that they may become for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. At the time he was betrayed and entered willingly into his passion, he took bread and, giving thanks, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this, all of you, and eat of it, for this is my body which will be given up for you. In a similar way, when supper was ended, he took the chalice and once more giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this, all of you, and drink from it, for this is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant, which will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in memory of me. The mystery of faith, save us, Savior of the world, for by your cross and resurrection you have set us free. Therefore, as we celebrate the memorial of his death and resurrection, we offer you, Lord, the bread of life and the chalice of salvation, giving thanks that you have held us worthy to be in your presence and minister to you. Humbly we pray that partaking of the body and blood of Christ, we may be gathered into one by the Holy Spirit. Remember, Lord, your church spread throughout the world, and bring her to the fullness of charity, together with Francis our Pope and Michael our Bishop and all the clergy. Remember also our brothers and sisters who have fallen asleep in the hope of the resurrection, and all who have died in your mercy. Welcome them to the light of your face, 
Have mercy on us all, we pray, that with the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God, with Blessed Joseph, her spouse, with the Blessed Apostles and all the saints who have pleased you throughout the ages, we may merit to be co-heirs of eternal life and may praise and glorify you through your Son, Jesus Christ. Through him and with him and in him, O God, Almighty Father, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor is yours forever and ever. Amen. Precepti salutaribis moniti, et divina institutione formati, audemus dicere, Pater noster, qui es in celis, sanctifice tuur nomen tuum, adveniat regnum tuum, fiat voluntas tua, sicud in celo et in terra, panem nostrum coditianum, da nobis hodie, et dimite nobis debita nostra, sicud et nos dimitimus, debitoribus nostris, et ne nos inducas in tentationem, sed libera nos amalo. Deliver us, Lord, we pray, from every evil, graciously grant peace in our days, that by the help of your mercy we may be always free from sin and safe from all distress, as we await the blessed hope and the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Lord Jesus Christ, who said to your apostles, Peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Look not on our sins, but on the faith of your church, and graciously grant her peace and unity in accordance with your will, who live and reign forever and ever. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Let us offer each other the sign of peace. Agnus Dei, qui tolis peccatamundi, miserere nobis. Agnus Dei, qui tolis peccatamundi, miserere nobis. Agnus Dei, qui tolis peccatamundi, dona nobis pacem. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those called to the supper of the Lamb. Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. An act of a spiritual communion. My Jesus, I believe that you are present in the most holy sacrament. I love you above all things, and I desire to receive you into my soul. Since I cannot at this moment receive you sacramentally, come at least spiritually into my heart. I embrace you as if you were already there, 
and unite myself wholly to you. Never permit me to be separated from you. Amen. Let us pray. O God, who in your holy martyrs have wonderfully made known the mystery of the cross, graciously grant that drawing strength from this sacrifice, we may cling faithfully to Christ and labor in the church for the salvation of all through Christ our Lord. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go and announce the Gospel of the Lord. Hail, Holy Queen enthroned above, O Maria. Hail, Mother of mercy and of love. O Maria, triumph all ye cherubim. The Prayer to St. Michael St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. 
prayer of deliverance, Almighty God and Father, we beg thee through the intercession and help of the archangels, St. Michael, Raphael, and Gabriel, for the deliverance of our brothers and sisters who are enslaved by the evil one, from anxiety, sadness, and obsessions. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. From hatred, fornication, and envy. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. From thoughts of jealousy, rage, and death. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. From every thought of suicide and abortion. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. From every form of sinful sexuality. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. From every division in our family and every harmful friendship. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. From every sort of spell, malefice, witchcraft, and every form of the occult. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. Thou who said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, grant that through the intercession of the Virgin Mary we may be liberated from every demonic influence and enjoy thy peace always. In the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Celebrating the culture of life, this is the Guadalupe Radio Network, radio for your soul. Hi, I'm Joan Smith from St. Elizabeth and Seton Catholic Community. You're listening to AM 1430 KSHJ Houston, part of the Guadalupe Radio Network, radio for your soul. <laughs> 